0: Today, we're coming to one of those texts in the Bible that, um, you know, when you're doing the through the Bible reading, out, how many of y'all have ever read through the Bible in a year? Have Anybody ever done one of those kind of programs? It's incredible. I would highly recommend to it. But you come to certain places in the Bible, and it's like, I don't want to skip this page. We got one of those today. Um, there's names that we don't understand that are hard to pronounce. And we can kind of come to this of why is this even in the Scriptures? If the Scriptures are supposed to be God's Word and are supposed to be useful to us, why is this here? And, and I hope today that we'll come to God's Word expectant. Because this actually is here for a reason. Um, this genealogy is here for a reason. Um, genealogies or family trees... This is this is kind of a tracking down of where someone came from. It's starting to become popular again. Has anybody done any research on like Ancestry.com or anything like this? I was looking at this a little bit this week. Ancestry.com now, and I have no idea. This may be quack. I I, I don't know. Somebody who actually understands this stuff would have to say, you can like send in your DNA, and they will like figure out your ancestry for you now from your DNA. I mean, it's amazing. They'll tell you where what uh, area you came from and they can actually, with the computers that they have and the big data stuff that they're researching, they can figure out who your relatives are that you don't even know about based on your DNA. Amazing stuff. Um, I don't have that problem because um, my genealogy is really easy to remember. I'm I'm John Hughes Whitenack, and my dad's John Hughes Whitenack, and and his dad is, is, yep, John Hughes Whitenack, and his dad, it's it's John Hughes White Knack, and we we go back a while it's it's hard to remember sometimes but but this is important stuff and uh, I got the privilege of um Rallo and I we hosted the junior high girls uh Angie Get- Hunter um helped us lead that group um ladies y'all were a lot of fun to be with and I enjoyed you and I enjoyed your hearts and that you're asking genuine questions um trying to see who Jesus is, and, and it's by prayer that you'll know him very, very well, but uh, something happened this weekend that was wild, and, and I hope you will forgive me for picking on you, but Briley is one of our junior high girls, awesome girl, so, so this is Chad's daughter and Angie's daughter, and um, she was talking with some of the girls, and I didn't see her face, and I knew Angie was there too, and I actually thought, Angie was talking. Their voices, your voices are just like tracking together. It's amazing. And it's something you picked up from your mom. It's something, you, whether you want it or not, we pick up these characteristics from our family. And family history means something to us. Um, when I was ordained, one of the gifts that I was given was a book um, from just before the Civil War of a a relative I had way back there that was apparently an itinerant preacher. um, And I have his copy of a Josephus book. And it means something to me because I know there's this history there that's very, very rich. Um, My grandparents, my parents, my grandparents, they're, they're believers. And I appreciate what I've inherited from them. But even in our culture, we don't really get what a genealogy means there are cultures around this world particularly those who who aren't um, quite as as text-based aren't as writing based they're more orally based where genealogies are everything genealogies are history genealogies tell you who you are and they tell you how to interpret the present how to look forward into the future They, they orient you to life um, there's a story of a missionary who is a Bible translator, a Wycliffe translator, who was translating the Bible into a language in, in somewhere in the distant part of the world, and he began translating, and he translated what he thought would be the most important part of the Bible. So he picked some passages out of John, he picked a few passages um, out of Paul's epistles, and then he picked some kind of segments out of the Old Testament, and nobody trusted Christ. I mean, he worked hard. He was sharing the gospel. He had done all this work to learn their language. He created a written language for them because they didn't have one. He taught them to read that written language and then translated from the Greek and Hebrew. And the people just weren't trusting Christ. He continued. He was a faithful man. And he started translating all the rest of the Bible that he hadn't got to yet. And he came to two passages. One in the beginning of Matthew was, was particularly the breakthrough. And this one in Luke. Where it traces back and gives the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It gives his family history. And it is boring. And he almost didn't translate it. He said, but what do they need this for? But he did. He wanted to be faithful to God's word. So he translated it, thinking nothing would come of it. And when he started to have it proofread by some of the people who spoke that language, some, some native speakers. They started reading this and they came to these genealogies. And he said they froze in their tracks and looked at him with just jaw-dropped. And they said, You mean he's a real person? And the missionary said, What 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 do you mean? Jesus. All these people you've been talking about, you mean they're actually real people? course, they are real. I've told you they're real. But but the they had fathers. They have their family history here. And he said, "Yes, this is the family history." He said, "Is this real? Are these the real histories?" The missionary said, "Yes, of course. They're they're the real histories. It's just it's just who Jesus is." He said, "No, you don't understand. We never realized all that you were saying was actually." Real. We thought these were just good stories. Now we understand this is real. This is how we know history. These genealogies that were translated into this native tongue broke through the shell. It's what helped open this tribe's eyes to know Jesus. These are important. These are real. And I hope today we'll, we'll see two reasons. Why these genealogies and this story of Jesus being baptized are real. So open up your scriptures with me. You don't have a Bible. um, There's one in the little pockets in the chairs. It's on page 557. We're going to be in Luke chapter three, Luke chapter three. We're going to start in um, verse 21. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Luke chapter three. Head to verse 21. So big, big number three, little number 21, 557. If you need one of those uh, Bibles. You're certainly welcome to keep that if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures. Here's what it says. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus When he began his ministry was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the Son of Joanan, the Son of Ressa, the Son of Zerubbabel, the Son of Sheelio, the Son of Neri, the Son of Melchi, the Son of Adi, the Son of Kosam, the Son of Elmadam, the Son of Ur. the Son of Joshua, the Son of Eleazar, the Son of Jerem, the Son of Mathat, the Son of Levi, the Son of Simeon, the Son of Judah, the Son of Joseph. The son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Maliah, the son of Minna, the son of Matathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob. The son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray together. Lord, you are good and kind to give us your word. Father, as the the psalmist prayed, open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your law. Even in this passage that, that might not on first glance seem so wonderful. Or teach us and change us. May we know you, Jesus, the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your suffering, being united to you in your death. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have two points today. Very, very simple. And I, I stole Joe's outline. Everything's Jesus blank. Um, so two things. First, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. We're going to look at Luke 21, and 23, 21, and 22, and then that last little phrase there that obviously says, the Son of God, there in verse 38. But before we get into too many details about the, the words that are spoken here of Jesus, um, I want to ask a simple question and let's talk about for just a second the fact that Jesus was baptized. Why was Jesus baptized? Last week, Joe. Um, preached on John and the baptism of John. He talked about how baptism was because people were converting. They were coming to God. It talked about, it it symbolized their purity and repentance and faith. And and it showed their new lives as they came up out of this water. But as we're going to talk about today, Jesus needed none of that. Jesus never sinned, so he didn't need to repent. Jesus never strayed from God. He He was God the Son, so he didn't need to be converted. Uh, he didn't need a new life. He actually had life. He was the first human ever to be alive spiritually since Adam and Eve. And so why in the world would Jesus, who didn't need to be baptized, get baptized? As a matter of fact, John the Baptist asked this question, um, we see this in some of the other Gospels. Jesus comes to him to be baptized, and John says, no, 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 no. You need to baptize me. Um, As a matter of fact, John goes so far to say, I'm not worthy to untie your sandals to get in the water. And Jesus says, no. And this is the passage that Kevin read earlier. No, this is to fulfill all righteousness. Let it be done. And so Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. So I want us to think about three reasons. I want to give you three reasons before we kind of get into the detail of what does it mean to say Jesus is the son of God. Three reasons that Jesus was baptized, and then I want to give you a fourth reason that today people are baptized, um, and this is this is very timely because next week we're having a baptism service. So if if the Lord pricks anyone's heart this week, um, talk to a pastor today because we need to move. Um, if uh, you would be interested in baptize, if God has changed your heart, you've been converted, you've repented, um, and it is time to be baptized. So three reasons Jesus was baptized. First. This was to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew three fifteen says, "Let it be so now, for this is befitting for us to fulfill all righteousness." Um, one of the things I talk to all the kids um, with whom I speak about baptism is I ask them that that word righteousness. That's a big word. Some of the kids, you know, that's a little overwhelming. You you get that many letters stacked together. But what do you hear in that word? What what is the word within that word that you know? almost every one of them will tell me immediately, right. And that's exactly what is being said here. Jesus said this is the right thing to do. He said this is righteousness. This is something that God calls us to. And Jesus is our substitute for righteousness. When Jesus was here on this earth, He lived the perfect life, fulfilling all of God's demands for us. We can't do it in and of ourselves, but Jesus did it for us. Even to the point, that he was baptized for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus was as right and perfect as anyone could ever possibly be. So the first reason, fulfill all righteousness. The second reason, Jesus' baptism set an example for us. Um, We want to be like Jesus. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. So we follow his example. So he pictured for us exactly what we're to do in the Christian life. When we become a Christian, we're to be baptized to follow in his example. Um, so he set this example for us. So fulfill all righteousness, example. And then the third thing, and this is primary, and Joe talked a lot about this last week, so I'm not going to go into it, but baptism paints a picture. Something I always ask um, kiddos when we're talking about baptism, I'll pull up a picture of something on my phone. I usually use a tree because it's, it's kind of gets fun. I say, what is this? And the kids are like, that's a tree. Oh, you like trees? Oh, yeah. Climb this tree. Of course, they look at me and, and comment that I'm the big dork that I am and say, no, no, that's a picture of a tree. You can't climb a picture. And just in the same exact way, baptism is not the conversion of a heart. It's not the change of a heart. Otherwise, Jesus would not have needed to be baptized. But baptism paints a picture of what is happening. And one of the things that they would not have understood in this time, but comes to be seen later, is that this baptism pictured Jesus' perfect life for us. His death on the cross, His burial in a tomb for three days, and then His resurrection to new, eternal, forever life. It also paints another picture. Romans 6, 3 and 4 says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So every time there's a baptism, there's a sermon preached, there's a picture painted. And, and this is something, and I know I'm picking on some of the kids, but y'all have set with me. What do we talk about? What are we painting the picture with, kids, in baptism? Y'all got to wake up. Come on, track with me, kids. What are we painting the picture with in baptism? What's the paint? What's the canvas? All right, you guys know. Come on, kids, y'all are being shy. It's you guys, right? When someone is baptized, they are the picture. They're the picture of Christ perfect life, His death for sinners, and His resurrection to forever life and reigning. But they're also painting the picture of their own lives. That they were walking in sin and dead. That old man, that old woman died upon conversion. And Christ has worked an amazing miracle in every one of our lives and brought us up to newness of life. Just like I tell those kiddos, we don't hold you under unless you misbehave that morning. When you come up, it's a picture, not of you dying, but of you coming to life. And folks, that's the picture that Jesus painted. He was foreshadowing what would happen to him on that cross. And so we're baptized to paint this picture, to preach that sermon with our own bodies that Christ lived, died, and resurrected, and now. I, who used to be dead in my sins, have died to that oldness. And I'm alive again. So there's a fourth reason that Christians today are baptized. And I want to hit this very quickly. And and this is something that we don't always talk about. We don't always have time on those Sunday mornings. But as we're hitting this passage of baptism, this is not why Christ was baptized. Because everything wasn't quite in place and up yet. But we are baptized as kind of an initiation as as a coming in to a local body of the church the local church identifies and we 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 place our stamp when we see evidence in a person's life that they're a true believer and then we baptize them this is why churches we, we don't baptize a random person in a random place um there are churches out there that have done like youth group baptisms on on trips and beach camps and, it's not a biblical way of doing baptism, and it's not that baptism has to happen in you know some special baptistry or anything like that. I mean, we've done it in a pickup and a horse trough for years, but it's the local congregation is placing their stamp and say, We see God's work in your life, and we want to take you in to our church, our local manifestation of the body of Christ, and we baptize this, and it's a witness to the outside but it's also a testimony to those inside the church. We listen to a person's testimony or the witness of Christ's work in their lives, and then we dunk them in water before the church to say, yes, we see that this has happened. And whether it's that horse trough or a formal baptistry, that's not the important part. What's important is that a church welcomes a new member into their body at every baptism. So, that's a little bit about why jesus was baptized but i, but I want us to get back There's a little rabbit trail but it's an important rabbit trail to saying that first this passage tells us who jesus is it tells us that jesus is the son of god jesus is the son of god So in this text we'll see four times that jesus is declared the son of god or is shown to be god but before we get into them, I want to talk a little bit about what the Bible means by son of. We see that a lot in the Old Testament. There it talks about the son of the prophets. It talks about um, the son of men. It talks about the son of women. It talks about the sons of the priests. It talks about the sons of this and the sons of that and all these things. That is a big, fancy Old Testament way of saying what group a person's in, um, it's kind of like a figure of speech. In the same way, if I called someone a son of a gun, it's not thinking that I believe in my head that a pistol gave birth to someone. All right? It's it's a figure of speech. A son of a gun means I, I think he's like a gun. He can cause a whole lot of trouble. Um, he, he's a mess. He, he's a problem. When the Bible says someone's a son of the prophets, it doesn't mean his daddy was a preacher. That's not the Bible term for a preacher's kid. All right? When the Bible says son of a prophet, it's saying this person's a prophet. That's the group they're a part of in that same way that those genealogies breathe life into who we are. And it helps us understand to say he's a son of something means that's who he is. So in the claim saying that Jesus is the son of God, we're actually making a very, very powerful statement. Declaring not Jesus's simple relationship to the father as God, the son, But we're actually claiming, we're making the declaration that Jesus is himself God. So I want to look through this text. Open up your Bibles there again, primarily to verses 20 and 21, or excuse me, 21 and 22. And I want us to see a few ways um, that is shown that Jesus is God the Son or, or the Son of God. We can simply say that Jesus is God. So the first one, when Jesus is baptized, the heavens open. So look there in verse 21. Now when the people were baptized, lots of baptisms going on, it's normal kind of day-to-day happening, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open. While this is not conclusive proof that Jesus is God, I have been to a whole lot of baptisms, and I have never seen heaven split open and looked into what heaven was. This is something very unique and special that's happening at Christ's baptism. It's the first reason, Jesus was baptized, the heavens open. The second thing, God the Holy Spirit comes to him in visible form, like a dove. Listen again there, verse twenty-one, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. We think a lot of the Holy Spirit as a dove. I mean, you can see it in stained glass. We see it in all, symbols all over the place. Um, United Methodist Church uses that as part of their their kind of symbol for their denomination. Is the Holy Spirit is a dove? But this would have been unusual and and people in that day would not have known what to do with it because in the old testament the the picture the symbol of the holy spirit was fire you got to remember he is the holy spirit he is the one who purifies and so when they thought of the holy spirit they would have thought of, of probably a painful process of being purified of being made holy they would have thought of fire that's the picture in the old testament So suddenly the Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus and it's not fire to purify Him because He does not need to be purified. He is pure. He comes as a dove. A picture of peace. A picture of love. And one of the things that has happened for millennia starting all the way back to Augustine is the Holy Spirit has been described as the love between God the Father and God the Son. And so suddenly we see this picture This is one of the texts he uses to to make that description. The Holy Spirit is coming and pictured right there and descending on Jesus and the Holy Spirit stays with him. Which would have been a radical thought to people in his day. Today we are baptized in the Holy Spirit upon our conversion. Back then that was not the case. The Holy Spirit came and went from people. The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus and stays. Showing that this was a very, very unique person. So the third reason, or the third evidence we see. We see God the Father speak. Alright, so finish with me there in 22. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. With you I am well pleased. God the Father speaks. He says, you're my son. So the fourth, and this is all the way at the end there in verse thirty-eight. Simply says, after son of Adam, it says the son of God. And this is a a Mediterranean form of logic. It's it's a little bit foreign to our Western ears because Adam's daddy wasn't God. He, God created him. He made him. He didn't give birth to him. He didn't conceive him. But Doctor Luke makes this argument, and you got to remember, he's a doctor. He's he's making practical arguments. So he traces Jesus's lineage all the way back to Adam. And he kind of twists this argument. He uses this lineage of Jesus' human history to declare Jesus' divine origin. So who was Adam's father? If you were asked that question, how would you answer it? Well, the only person who made Adam was God. So then logically, God has to be his father. Therefore, Jesus has as his birthright, not just son of Joseph, son of, son of, son of, all the way back to Adam, but the title Son of God. This may not seem like a very convincing argument to us after a couple millennia of Western logic, but what he's doing is he's using rhetoric, which was very Mediterranean, to say Jesus is the Son of God. He is God. So we don't just see in this passage, though, that Jesus is God. We actually see God's trinity or, or His Triune nature. Um, this is one of the very few places in Scripture where we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all acting in different ways at the same time. We see God, the triune God, acting in many times. We see the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son listed many times. But this place, we see each person of the Godhead acting in a slightly different role. This concept of God being one essence but three persons, is unique and it is also central to Christianity. Um, No Christian could claim this to be simple. If we tried to use an analogy, it would fall apart. And we can share a video with you that's absolutely hilarious with some of those analogies that fall apart if you ever want to see it. But it's something amazing about who God is. It's something that's beyond human explanation. It's beyond words in some way. He's bigger, more transcendent than simplistic language would allow to explain. So, take this. Think about it. And if that's not a satisfying answer to the Trinity, the answer is it's absolutely not. But God is three in ones, Three persons, one essence. And part of that is exactly how we know that this is not the creation of man but something beyond us, because who would come up with that? It doesn't work in our brains. It's bigger, it's harder. So next, after making our hands spin with Trinity, we're not just going to talk about Jesus being the Son of God, not just Jesus as divine, but the second point of this passage is that Jesus is the Son of Man. And for my own sanity, I'm not going to read all those names again, so y'all just remember with me. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. I mean, I was stressed, y'all. Let me just tell you. I've been working all week on getting those names down. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. And he was being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of healing, and on and on. talks about Jesus' dad. And it does say, as was supposed. It was not his biological father, because Jesus was conceived miraculously to a virgin. Jesus is not just the Son of God. He's also the Son of Man. The Son of technolo- terminology is a way of putting somebody in category. So right after Jesus is declared to be the Son of God, Dr. Luke, make sure we don't get the wrong message. That we think He's not human. He's just this, this divine who kind of looks like a person. In the same way the Holy Spirit kind of looks like a dove, but wasn't actually a dove. But as we get into this, we see that Luke is declaring Jesus to be completely 100% human. So I do want to answer, again, we kind of had the little rabbit trail on the first point. We're going to have a little rabbit trail on the second one here. And that's whose genealogy of this? Um, And I want to speak to to some of you um, who may be skeptics right now. And and by the way, if you're a skeptic here and you, you don't fully embrace Christ, you're welcome. We're glad you're here. We're honored that you'd put up with our oddities at some point. And come, thank you for coming, but I want to speak specifically to you for a moment because this is one of the texts that skeptics will often point to and say theres there seems to be or there is a contradiction in scripture because this, gene- this is genealogy it says "The son of Joseph, the son of Heli." If you turn over to the Gospel of Matthew, it does not say that. um everybody do that with me real quick. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I didn't look at this in the few Bibles. I'm sorry, I can't give you a page number. But This is right how Joseph's, or how Matthew starts with Joseph. Um, so look at this very quickly here. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he's getting big categories, and then he gets specific. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob, and we're going to track down, and I want you to skip down there with me. It says at the very end that Mattathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called to Christ. So who is Joseph's dad? Jacob, right? Flip back to Luke. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of? Heli. All right, that's not the same guy, Jacob and Heli, right? Uh, I'm, they may be hard to pronounce, but those aren't the same. All right? This is a problem, and, and I want to be just very forthright. This is a struggle, and I don't have the exact answer to it. Um, We look back there, and you've got two different guys writing, and they write two different genealogies. And by the way, that's not the only difference. I mean, these are completely different genealogies tracking all the way back to David. From David on, they're similar. Um, But tracking back to David, they're different. So there's a couple explanations for this. And I don't want to give you, this is definitively how I know for a fact. This is what the difference is. But I want to give you two reasonable explanations. Um, one that I think is the right one, one that's that's reasonable, but I, I don't think it is as strong. So the first possibility. This genealogy here in Luke is Joseph's biological genealogy. Okay, In other words, this is the guy who actually conceived Joseph, and the guy who conceived him and conceived him. It's biological in nature. Um, it's presented here in Luke. And the genealogy in Matthew is actually the line of kings. It's in the same way that if we looked at uh, England and we traced their line of kings, it's not always the firstborn son that is the king. Sometimes it changes. Sometimes somebody dies. Sometimes somebody's a goofball and then having him. So, you know, it, it, it shifts around a little bit. What's presented in Matthew, we are pretty confident. This is the line of kings. So it's not always biological descendants. It's actually who had the right to rule on the throne of Israel. And Matthew, in his gospel, certainly presents that Jesus had the right to rule. Um, so that is one explanation. This is Joseph's biological genealogy. That one is the right to rule, the, the, the um, birthright that's passed on to rule Israel. That's reasonable. It could work. I, I don't think that's the case when, when looking at the language and some of those things. The second and much more um, common way of looking at this is that this is Mary's biological genealogy, whereas in Matthew, it's his biological genealogy to start back to the last king of Israel, and then it is the birthright um, of the kings. And here's why I think that and many others. There's a tradition that if a father-in-law did not have a son to pass his name on to, he would adopt his son-in-law. So for instance, Joe Stegall has four girls, all right? There's not a dude to pass on the family name. It would be tradition if back then for one of his son-in-laws, when assuming some of his girls get married, he would adopt that adult and that would become his heir. And so that's what's thought to be um, the case with Joseph here. And one of the things that actually points to that is in the Greek, and it is minor, minor, but I want to tell you why. Again, because if if you're thinking about these things, I want to give you the evidence. There's actually a grammatical difference when it says Joseph the son of Heli than all the other genealogies in that entire list. It actually says Joseph a son of Heli. In every other one it says Joseph the son of Heli in the original Greek. So it it seems to kind of present that. Um, Neither is a perfect explanation but when we think about that there's a little grammatical difference there, that Dr. Luke interviewed Mary in all likelihood. We get Mary's perspective on a lot of things. It kind of makes sense for Mary's genealogy to be in there. It's a reasonable explanation. I can't tell you this is it, but I think there's two reasonable things to say. You can trust the Scriptures in this point. So, back to the ranch. We're talking about Jesus, the Son of Man. Why were there two genealogies? all right? And I want you to think about this. Luke's argument, Jesus is a human. Jesus is the Son of Man. And I want to compare Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. So listen to this. Jesus represented the human race. So the genealogy that Luke wrote was to show us that Jesus was completely human. He was the second Adam is a term Paul picks up. Matthew starts with extremely important people, Abraham, the father of the faith. Luke starts with Joseph or Mary. And it doesn't even really matter because they were not very significant people. Matthew opens his gospel with the genealogy. It's the first thing he does to say, Jesus is king, you must listen to him. But Luke inserts this genealogy later to help you know that Jesus really was human when you might be questioning that fact. Matthew stops the list, and he notes times. He notes significant people with significant Bible pedigrees. Luke just lists a bunch of guys with weird names. Dr. Luke was giving evidence that Jesus was human. This list of names is a direct traceable history of Jesus' humanity. Jesus was a man. Calling someone the son of man, it's almost nonsense. If we didn't have a reason to believe, he wasn't human. Uh, Calling somebody a human is kind of easy, right? Uh, I I love reading history books. Um, I love reading about the Civil War. I love reading about World War II. But if I pick up a Civil War book and I'm reading history, um, we can pick a, a random figure. Let's say Lee. Uh, we we got to see Chad Joe and I got to see Lee's house there on Arlington Cemetery. The author does not start with oh by the way Lee was human. We know that, right? We get it. I mean he's a history figure, but Luke, who's trying to write for certainty, he's trying to write an orderly history, takes all this big huge paragraph to say Jesus is human. This is not normally the task of a history book. It's only necessary if this is doubtable. So what we need to understand is that Dr. Luke wants us to get that Jesus, the Son of God, is also the Son of Man. He is perfectly human. This is what, and I'm going to throw a word at you here, this is what theologians call the hypostatic union, all right? It's the joining of two realities together into one. Uh, Jesus, the second person of God, took on flesh. That's John chapter one. He became human while fully retaining his divinity. There's another one of those head scratchers. It, it, it's it's hard to conceive. How can you have both? How can you be 200 percent? He was 100 percent human, 100 percent God. That doesn't add up in our books. He needed to be half of one, half of the other 60, 40. But no, he was 100 percent, 100 percent. To this very day, Jesus is completely human. The resurrection that we celebrate on Easter means that Jesus, the human, is still alive today. Today, many people um, doubt Jesus' divinity. That's really the harder argument to win today. Back in John's day, back in Luke's day, back in Matthew's day, it was easy to think about God doing something. I mean, think about the Greeks that they were all over the place. There was God's doing this and God's doing this. That was easy talk. To say that God would become human was actually offensive to them. Because they saw God as so far and so distant and people, flesh, humanity, physical things as, as somehow inherently dirty But what we see in Scripture is that God created everything with dignity and worth. And particularly, He created every human with dignity and worth. So much so that God took on humanity. God the Son became the Son of Man. This term Son of Man is actually used 24 times in the book of Luke. It's so significant that in Jesus' trial right before his death, what incites the people to riot is Jesus gets up and says, I'm the Son of Man. This is really important. Because in the Old Testament, the Son of Man was not anything to be taken lightly. There were people who were called a Son of Man in the Old Testament. In other words, just a human. But you get to Ezekiel and Daniel and the prophets. And this becomes a very, very important term. These two men, they lived at the same time and and they received future prophecies at a time Israel was really low. It was taken over. There was no country. And Ezekiel was called the son of man. And by my count and study, 72 times in his book, he was called the son of man. And he became this picture of what Jesus would be. Jesus would be this man who preached the good news to people who said there is hope There's a better day coming. And you need to turn back to God and repent. And so this picture of Ezekiel being the son of man was picked up by Daniel. And in one of the more clear passages that Kevin read to us earlier, it says the son of man would come. He was going to strike down all the kingdoms. Daniel saw all these visions of kingdoms. And I mean, it, it kind of looks like the presidential primaries right now. It was wild people with wild ideas fighting. Ugliness, chaos. And then he says, And then I saw one like the Son of Man coming. And he came and he took over. He ruled. He became God's forever king. Another place in Daniel, it describes the Son of Man as a giant rock, a, a boulder, a mountain sized rock shooting down from the heavens and it hits. The kingdoms of people. It literally blows them up. And then this rock becomes a mountain and all of Israel goes to the mountain and rejoices. The Son of Man is ultimate power. This is, this is not just saying Jesus is a guy. This term Son of Man says He is the guy. The guy entirety of the Old Testament points to. He is the guy who's coming to rule and to reign on God's throne forever and ever. He is the guy who God is sending in his place. He is the guy who's coming. It's echoed back in Psalms 8, Psalm 8, and Psalms 144. It's the title that Jesus called himself the most. I'm the son of man. So what does all this mean? We've got Jesus, the son of God, Jesus, the son of man. We have Trinity. We have repentance. We have hypostatic union. We've got baptism. I mean, this I I was texting with Joe and Chad Friday. I'm like, I've never covered this many subjects in a sermon in my life. And it's really heady. I I mean, and y'all are probably ready to stand up and stretch and, you know, take a nap. But there's something to all this. And I kind of want to wrap it up, and I, and I want to go to three places and talk about application. Where do we go? What, what does all this word-splitting get us? And, and I think there are three really, really important things we need to get. And the, and the first thing is a theological application. Theology just means the study of God. It's what you think about God. Everyone has a theology. Even if you don't believe in God, you have a theology. It's that you don't believe in Him. So I think this passage points us to something theology. We need to take this passage and let, us sh- let it show us who God is and who Jesus Christ is. Our doctrine and our theology, what we think about God, and particularly what we think about Jesus, matters. We need to think correctly in this case about Jesus. He is both fully God and fully human. If that's not correct in our minds, we need to change our thinking. Even if we don't fully understand it, we need to know, we need to believe, We need to think rightly that Jesus is fully God and fully human. The second thing is a personal application. First, theologically, we need to get that right, but personally. Not only do we need to think correctly about Jesus, but we need to place our trust correctly in Jesus. The Bible does not present Jesus as some good teacher. That's not apparent in this passage. Jesus is much, much more than that. He's not just some religious guru. We can pick a few of his ideas we like. The Bible calls Jesus God. As a matter of fact, it calls him the God-man. And Jesus then says, I am the only way to get to God. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So He is the only access to God. Jesus declares that He is righteous for us. He declares that He paid for our sins on the cross. He calls us to respond in faith and repentance to this truth. And the first is faith with the big letter F and repentance with the big letter R. It's that initial conversion. It's that when God changes you and brings you to life as we talked about in baptism. It's that initial time when you trust Christ. And I pray for some of you, maybe some of you students, who've interacted with these truths all weekend. Maybe for some of you who who we talked, I I talked to you before as, as skeptics, you're welcome here, but I would pray and hope that one day you would say the evidence is leaning this direction and you would trust Christ. You would turn from your ways and your way of thinking to Him. But it also speaks to us personally For those of us who have already trusted Christ, we've already had that big F faith and that big R repentance. And it calls us to little F faith and little R repentance every single day. Our thinking needs to change about Christ every single day. We need to be growing in how we understand who Jesus is and what He did. We need to personally live in faith and repentance in this Son of God, and the Son of Man who brought the good news that He is enough for us, He is righteous for us, and He paid for our sins. So we need to apply this to theologically. We need to apply it personally. But as a church, and I'm going to speak to the, to the folks in the church here, the, the church members, we need to apply this corporately. As a church, we need to seek to keep our teaching and our doctrine pure. That's part of our covenant that we've made with each other. The promise we've made with each other before God is to keep our doctrines and our disciplines. We need to make sure that our witness is not diluted, as so many other churches have become over the centuries. We are to believe and preach the truth no matter the difficulty, no matter the struggles what might be with logic or the technical difficulty to explain things. We need to do the hard work of understanding. But in addition to that, we're to proclaim the good news that Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, came to earth to save sinners like you and me. Jesus is presented out. Luke's making an argument. He's trying to be persuasive. He is trying to argue people that Jesus is God and Jesus is man. Therefore, you should trust Him. You should abandon everything else and turn only to Him. That's Luke's argument, folks. We need to be making the same argument. The scriptures through Paul call us to be ready all the time, to be willing to give an explanation for the hope that is in us. In other words, what we believe, we need to be willing to share. We need to be able to make a reasoned argument for it. We don't just go through catchphrases and and being quirky and, and the four spiritual laws, which is a great thing, but that's not the gospel. We need to share Jesus with people. And, church, we've gotten kind of lazy on that. And I'm talking to every person sitting in every green chair right now. And even folks in the sound booth, y'all's chairs aren't green. Everybody here, we are called to share this news, to think through it, to share Jesus. So, as we wrap up, I want you to think with me for just a minute. I love. And I mean truly love, probably to to an inappropriate degree. I love adventure stories, whether it's on a movie, whether it's a book. I, I mean, Clive Cussler gets out. My wife, my stack of Clive Cussler novels will just disgust my wife. I mean, and she wants to throw them away or sell them. I'm like, no, no I don't want to read it again. Um, Joe and I, I mean, it's just sad around the office when a new Marvel movie's coming out. Whether it be Star Wars or the latest way Hollywood's cooked up for an entire city to be wiped out. Man, I love the adventure. I love the struggle. I love the triumph against all odds. I love the hero. Not not this hero or that. I mean, I love the concept of a hero. My personal favorite and has been for as long as I can remember, it has got to be Indiana Jones. I mean, no superpowers, no weird mechanical Batmanish things. He's just got a brain, a whip, and a fedora. And he always saves the day. He saves the world. He gets the girl. He finds the treasure. And he looks really cool doing it. Everything in me wants to be Indiana Jones. I mean, that's just, I got to go to the Middle East when I was in college. And I mean, oh, you talk about nerding out. And I mean, climbing down into a pyramid, you know, I, oh, it was It was full-on nerd. But over the years, I've come to see something. I always want to be the hero. Whenever I see that story, I'm always picturing myself as the one that's the hero. I want to be the one who always comes through. I want my life to be the one to save the day. Whether it was in a relationship, I always wanted to save people from their struggles. When I first became a pastor, I had a tendency, I wanted to come in and I wanted to save the day. I wanted to save the relationship. I wanted to fix the attic. The problem was, with that attitude, I always messed things up. And usually the day wasn't safe. I had to come to a place and realize I had pictured the story all wrong. I wanted to be the hero in life. I wanted to be the hero in my story. But I'm not actually Indiana Jones. Whether it be wanting to make the fortune, save the business, change the world, get the girl. The problem is, in our stories, we always see them backwards. We want to be the hero, but the truth is, we're the ones who need the hero. God created Adam and Eve to leave completely dependent on him. The reason things broke in the garden wasn't about what kind of fruit they ate. It was that they were depending on themselves and they were rejecting God as their everything. They rebelled and tried to place themselves on the ruling throne. And their children continued this attempt to raise the throne of God and sin erupted out of control. God altered all the chaos flood that restarted human history with a man named Noah. But rather than restart and get it right this time, humans rebelled again, and we attempted to overthrow God's rule by advancing society and building the tower and making it all perfect in our way. God comes down see what these silly humans are doing, and he brought confusion. But rather turn from this confusion to this God who fixes it all, Humanity separated and we continued our fight against God just in little pockets all over the world. So God chose a man named Abraham to create a new people for himself who would live in his place and be under his blessing and rule. But this people forgot the God who saves them and they became slaves to other rulers. God sent a rescuer named Moses to picture their savior who would come. They turned, but it was only for a split second till they rebelled again, and they demanded a king because God was not king in their eyes. They would not to they would not wait to see that Jesus is the eternal king. They wanted something now. So David and then Solomon ruled, and things looked better at times, and it was starting to actually look a little bit more like that garden that they had gotten so far away from. But then the greed of man split the kingdom in two. And God's people were allowed to suffer in the hand of a foreign oppressor to try to make them desperate and see God as their true satisfaction. God sent messengers to them, like Daniel and Ezekiel we mentioned today. They pictured a suffering servant, a ruler on a chariot of fire, a fourth man in the furnace who was condemned to die for their faith, a crown, a fiery torch, an unstoppable stoppable meteor, a gentle mother gathering her chicks in. All pictures of what God would do But then, 400 years before Jesus was born, God went silent. Had He given up on His plan? Had people gone too far to be redeemed? Was there no hope of the hero? But then, an explosion of light out in a shepherd's field. As a heavenly army marched upon the earth, not to make war, but to sing a song to a little baby. The new Adam, the son of man, the son of God had come and God, the father placed everything on him. The world finally had a hero. He was a new Adam who would see God as everything. He was the new Noah who would not just save his family, but thousands upon thousands. He was the new Abraham who would restart God's people. And they would trust the Father every time. He was the new Moses who would truly deliver the people all the way to God's place where never God, Moses never made it. He was the new David who would rule forever. He was the new Ezekiel who would be a son of man standing before God for men. He was the son of God. He was the son of man. We make no better heroes than a three-year-old in a wooden sword trying to slay the dragon. But Jesus, And commend Jesus to. you. He's a hero worth following. He's a hero worth repenting to. He's a hero worth trusting. He's a hero worth sharing to your neighbor. He's a hero worth getting out of your comfort and going to Kazakhstan for. Think rightly about the king. Think rightly about his local manifestation of his people. Respond to the Son of God. The Son of Man. His name's Jesus. Let's pray. God, work in us and change us. Speak to our hearts and our minds. May we sing to You. May we praise You. Lord, I pray that You would save those who are lost. That's not a word anyone once said about them, but help us to recognize that's either where we were or where we're at. Find us this morning. Pray for those who are saved. That we would trust and repent of whatever our latest rebellion might be. Lord, I pray that you would get us off our seats. May we go to our neighbors and the nations. Lord, may we worship you. May we praise you in Jesus' name.